Well, good morning, everyone. I want to start by saying a word of thank you to everyone that helped with the spring fling yesterday. We had a great turnout and a great time. Um, apologies to all the staff and volunteers who got sunburned. I do realize I'm apologizing for the sun. don't really have a right to do that. Um, <laughs> no, um, I'm one of those two that got sunburned, so maybe we should try sunscreen next year. Um, with that, though, I do I honestly want to say thank you. We had a handful of people that just went above and beyond. A big word of thanks to Ashley and Fred and, and Bob and everyone, the whole team, and especially Lisa, who pulled everything together. Uh, that was one of the first things I did after I started a little over three weeks ago is we had our first staff meeting. It was just Ashley and I. And she said, well, you used to do this thing right before Easter called Spring Fling. And I was like, that's good. Let's just do that again. Not, not realizing the amount of production and effort that went into it and how two and a half weeks probably wasn't enough time. But you guys made it work, despite me, and it is amazing. So I thank you for that. Uh, we, as many of you know, uh, if you don't know, if you're visiting with us, I started here about four Sundays ago now. I count my life in Sundays, un unopposed to normal people who use weeks. And we've been traversing the desolate landscape that is I-35 between here and where we live in Fort Worth. And a few things changed this week. I want to say first, thank you for all the prayers. We closed on a house last week. So we were able to, I mean, you can clap for that or you can clap for the long honeydew list I now have. Um, but we closed on that. We were able to stay in that for the very first time. Very exciting. I thank you all for the help and the prayers, all of you who've helped us this far with that, um, certain families, certain people who've been really involved in that. Thank you so much for all of that support. Um, as in any home purchase, it's always like a struggle, and the paperwork never ends, and you cross the line, and it's just this huge weights lifted off your shoulder, and you go home, and then the dishwasher dies, which is literally kind of what happened to us this week. Um, so... I want to thank you for all the prayers and support in that. Uh, also prayers and support for my family as they continue to finish the school year out up in Fort Worth, um, even though many of you continue to call it Dallas. <laughs> um, speaking of that, though, we were up there this week. I had to go back up for a meeting all day Thursday and then spend some time with my family, and we all drove back down. But the, the Metroplex, as we commonly refer to it, was very busy this weekend. And it was actually impossible to drive around starting Thursday because there were just so many extra people there. Two great things were colliding in Arlington this weekend. Two huge things were colliding. One, baseball is one of them. Good, good call. Good, yeah, nice. You called the first part of the illustration. That's awesome. Baseball, the Rangers had their opening day this weekend, and they won. Yeah. And it was a good weekend, right? And then, then the next day, something else happened. A completely different group of people arrived in Arlington from, sort of, Taylor Swift. Yes. Taylor Swift. People who paid thousands of dollars for tickets to a concert arrived from all over the nation to hear Taylor Swift sing. And I was shocked as I drove back down here Friday evening exactly how many Taylor Swift songs I was familiar with. <laughs> That's a number I'm not going to share because I'm embarrassed. I'm also not going to share if it's embarrassing because I know a lot or a little. 
I'll let you fill the blanks in. At this point, though, before I continue the illustration, I want to plug, uh, if you haven't yet, the Sunday after next, we're starting our church, our next sermon series on our church Spotify, our family playlist. If you have not yet, in all of our communication channels, we have a chance for you to submit your favorite songs, both, both Christian, religious, worship in nature, or secular, normal, whatever is in your top 10 on Spotify. I simply ask that you keep it somewhat clean. It is a playlist for the whole church family, and we're building a sermon series off of it. So if you put some really crazy songs there, one, I'm not going to preach about those songs, and two, it'll be really interesting. I will say, as I look this morning, it's fairly anonymous, so I'm not really sure who's submitting what. So maybe just go to town, you know. <laughs> Anonymity is, is a tool used delicately sometimes. But anyway, going on, we had the Rangers opening day and Taylor Swift, and the Metroplex was buzzing with people and excitement. But I can't think of two more different groups. You have all of these people showing up for a concert at AT&T Stadium, and then you have literally down the road from them all of the people there for the double hitter this weekend, Thursday and Saturday. You know, all of these people coming for baseball. And, and, and the crowds were within proximity of each other. So I would, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in some of the restaurants in the middle of Arlington this weekend as you had these groups of people coming in fully decked out in Rangers gear top to bottom. And I apologize for the illustration to the one person I saw with a Houston Astros hat on as they were coming in the sanctuary. You missed the sermon about the Texans last week, I think. Um, and they're seated right beside this table full of folks who've traveled from all over the country for the Taylor Swift concert. And the poor wait staff that has to do the mental gymnastics of jumping between the two. And, and they want to get a good tip, so they're, they're over here, they're name-dropping the players on the Rangers roster that are starting, and they walk over here to get the order from this table, and they're trying to think of the Taylor Swift songs that they know, and they probably know a lot of them also, and, and they share that with them, and, and they feel accomplished. You know, it, it sounds crazy, and it sounds chaotic, and it sounds almost mentally exhausting and taxing when you think about it. And what was really interesting is we read the triumphant entry into Jerusalem in Luke's gospel this morning, which is our normal Palm Sunday reading. I always try to think, what was Jerusalem like that week? And I don't really have to wonder, because there's a lot probably like Arlington was this week in the Metroplex. These almost polar opposite groups of people coming in and having to occupy the same space. And it's not a small number of them, it's a large number of them. And they're pushing and crowding each other. And not just physically, but ideologically, their thoughts and what values they hold and the things that motivate them are different. Sometimes polar opposites. I really wonder how many people caught opening day and then hung around the next day to dance at the Taylor Swift concert. I'm not sure that was a huge number of people. But there were probably a few of them. In the same way, Jerusalem was a buzz as they entered one of the holiest parts 
of the Jewish calendar. People from all over the area had come. Some people that were very, very, very supportive of the current regimes and the religious rulers of the day and other people who weren't and all sorts of people in between. And it was as crowded and taxing as you can think that Arlington was this week with those different groups for all the different things happening. And it was into this mess of people that Jesus and the disciples enter in our scripture reading today. They enter into this mess of Jerusalem that is overcrowded with all of the people coming for the festivities and the action that's happening that week at the temple, coming for the Passover, coming for the activities, coming to see family. And it's full of all the people who are coming to see the different things that drove them at a religious season to the capital. And Jesus walks into that. It's almost as exhausting and mentally trying as the imaginary waiter trying to switch between the ranger's table and the Taylor Swift table. But I think what's important, not only is the context in which Jesus enters Jerusalem, but also how he does it. He does it on the back of a donkey. Not instructing his followers to create a fanfare, but quietly entering. Now they begin to create fanfare and yell and shout and praise and the the traditional thing we see with the palm branches and the coats in the road. But that wasn't the beginning. And to us reading backwards through history, as we read that passage, we think, oh, that's a lot of fanfare. We're lifting it up. We're praising him. But let me tell you, compared to how leaders entered the city in that day, in a full-on parade on their stallions, this was a rather meek and humble affair. They didn't roll out the red carpet. They didn't clear out the undesirable people. He didn't ride in at the head of a processional with the officers behind him on their horses in power and majesty. He literally rode in on a borrowed donkey walking on some old people's coats and random palm branches. On this day, Jesus models what humility is. Because the God of creation incarnate in flesh for his triumphant entry into Jerusalem chose not the entry of a king or a political ruler, not the might of a military leader, but he chose to ride in quietly on a donkey, letting the crowd respond as they will. It wasn't something that was normal, but it was a model of a humility. And I don't think it was a model of humility that we look at from afar and say, that's neat. Yeah, that's exactly what God should do. I think it's a model of humility that we were meant to follow. 
This whole sermon series, we've been telling stories, one mostly so you guys can quickly get to know me as we come in mid-year and make a pastoral transition mid-year rather quickly for us. I know it's been long for y'all. Um, also, we're going through and we're using one key verse, and that's Micah 6.8, where Micah, God speaking through him to the nation, kind of tells the nation of Israel what God desires of people. And I'm sure you're sick of hearing it by now because it's the fourth week we've read it. But he wants us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And we're in the last one this week, walking humbly with God. See, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem sets a tone for how people respond to him. Think about it this way, as we've been building on this passage from Micah each week, if doing justice is the lens through which we see all of the people, even the marginalized people that have been pushed outside of our community and our culture, if that's the lens through which we see the people, and then our love of mercy, doing mercy, is the language in which we communicate the gospel, then our humility, our walk of humility with God, is the tone in which we speak the gospel into existence. That tone is so vital. It doesn't matter how right we are or how correct our information is. If the tone we take when we communicate it turns people off, then what good are we at sharing that gospel? What good are we at sharing it? if how we share it scares people away. For several years before I was a pastor, I did youth ministry, and that was rewarding and exhausting. I'm not sure which one more so. <laughs> but there was a volunteer book we would do trainings with uh, at the larger churches I was at, and it, it was a picture of a, a wide-eyed person with a name tag, and the title of the book was, Do They Run When They See You Coming? <laughs> and, and, and seriously, do they run when they see you coming? And it was a whole book about volunteer recruitment and training and deployment. How do you bring volunteers into a youth group? How do you train them? How do you deploy them effectively? And how do you do all that without scaring people away? Because the last thing you want... Um, during a certain season in the life of a youth ministry is, is for the youth director to call you and be like, hey, what, what, what are you doing next Saturday? And you're frantically looking on your calendar for the church to make sure it's not the same night as the youth lock-in. And then you realize, oh, no, it is. That's what this phone call's about. And, or it's, a, it's even worse as a, as a pastor because you go into nomination season and no one wants to answer your phone calls. <laughs> you're, you're, you begin calling people. And everyone knows, oh, oh, he, is he calling to serve on some committee? And it always goes the same way. Can you just do it for like three weeks? And three weeks turns into three years, your whole life. But no, do, do they run when they see you coming? Part of that is tone and how we take it. It's not the message we communicate. Because if you ask anyone, they'll say, yeah, people volunteering in our ministries are is vitally important. People serving in leadership, vitally important. But how we communicate that vital importance, we might all be speaking the same language as we communicate it, but how we communicate it, the tone that we take, 
has a profound impact on if the person on the other end is going to say, yes, I would love to serve at that youth lock-in. Or if they're going to say, mm, man, I've really got to go to bed at 8 o'clock that night because I'm getting up to go to the Rangers game the next day. The tone we take when we communicate is something the world bases its response on. And we can see this all through church history. The times when the church was proud, overly proud of itself, and communicated in a tone that signified that to the world around it. The world recoiled away from the message of the gospel. But the times that the church has humbled itself, not marching into the community square as some victorious general, but instead riding as modeled for us the back of a donkey in humility among the people of the world. The world has, at that time, ran towards the gospel message we bring. Because I think it's vitally important how we communicate the message of the gospel. And we see that on Palm Sunday. Not just its importance, but how we do it. When I was in college... I had a professor, and he, he's a really good guy. He actually filled in a few times for organ on me in my last appointment and did a bunch of collaborative music ministry between our two choirs because the last church I came from was fairly traditional. And our choir and their choir for the church he, he worked as an organist at, we would get together and we'd do cantatas on Easter and Christmas and all that. And he would always come and guest play at my church. Amazing, brilliant gentleman. I, I love the guy. It, but I was an undergrad student, and I was in his Greek class, introductory to Greek. That's not the most fun class in the world. And I was so proud of myself because I was one of the, I was a religion major and, and I'd studied this and, and I thought I was going to do so good. I was so proud of myself. I felt I was so good at this one class that I was going to be great at it. And I remember the second day of class, he called me forward to begin reading to really see if I'd done my studying the night before. And he opened up the Gospel of John and asked me to read the first five verses. But not like the way we read them now, but in the Greek. And I was so proud of myself. I was a religion major. I was going to do so good. I also was so proud of myself. I didn't quite study. And I stepped up to the little podium at the front of the classroom and I got like two words out. And I stood there very awkwardly for what felt like forever. It was probably 30 seconds. And he asked me from the back room, Mr. Douglas, you can, you can go sit down now. See, what's funny, I think, is that when we take the more prideful course in life, I feel like the Spirit has a way of leading us back to humility. 
And sometimes that's a little harsher of a road than we want to follow. Sometimes life, when we allow the Spirit to lead us on a path of humility, is a lot like driving on a brand new flat road. And when God, through the Spirit, has to force us back to humility, it's kind of like driving on that old country road, the one full of potholes and gravel, the one where your car forgets it has a suspension system. You'd just be more comfortable walking. I think that humility is so important to God. And that's why he drags us, sometimes kicking and screaming back to the point of humility, because that is part of the very essence of who God is. Even with all of the honor and all of the glory, all of the majesty, yet he still desires humility, even for himself as Jesus Christ, walking into his own city of Jerusalem. Riding on the back of not a warrior stallion signifying political achievement, but instead on the back of a borrowed donkey. And it makes me wonder how many times you and I and all of us have been in places just like I have, where we stand up and we're so prideful about what we think we have in the gospel that we forget for a moment that we're to be humble. That we're so prideful about what we have in our scripture that we forget the tone in which we're communicating it to the world. And that we must speak the gospel in a tone of humility. My wife has this saying when I start explaining stuff off the top of my head. And, and apparently I get this tone if I'm talking about certain things that she has to stop and she says, quit being a jerk. <laughs> I, know, I know none of you married couples out there have had, ever, ever had to say that to your spouse. And, and I'll say, well, I'm, I'm not being a jerk intentionally. Like I'm just telling you how this thing works, how this car works, how this system works, how this thing works, what this theology says. And she says, no, 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 listen to yourself. You sound like a jerk. See, for us in the church, we can begin saying things to the world. We can see, as we've talked about in Micah 6.8, the people on the margin. We can see all of the people through that lens of doing justice. And we can understand the gospel and the language of it through speaking that in love and care through the acts of mercy we do as a church or as individuals perfectly. But if the tone we take in that language still sounds kind of like a jerk, because we're insisting on being right, we're putting our foot down and saying, we're going to do this, we're maybe even judging people. then what good are we at fulfilling Matthew's commission to go into all of the world and make disciples? 
how we speak and the fact that our tone comes in the same way as our God who rode into Jerusalem today, not with a harsh tone, a dictatorial tone, authoritatively waving his banner of victory. No, our tone is to be like his, riding humbly on the back of a donkey, bringing to all who will hear the reality that the kingdom of God has drawn near to them. I want to lead off with this series on Micah 6.8 as we head into... Easter, not only because it gives a lot of opportunity to talk about some big theological concepts pretty easily, but also I honestly believe in closing that this is the model of evangelism the church has missed for so long. For so long, we have told countless people in worship settings and Sunday school classes and small groups that if you can just say one prayer, and you can just get more people to sit in the pews, and you can get more folks to come into our events, then we're doing a good job of evangelism. That we're fulfilling Matthew's commission at the end of his gospel to go out and make disciples. But I think it's something more than that. Because it's more than just putting more people in pews or more dollars in plates. But I want to begin my time here by telling you exactly how we bring the gospel to the world around us in a very practical way. And Micah 6.8 does that. We do it by seeing all of the people, even the forgotten ones, the ones in the margins, the ones that are missed, the ones maybe we want to miss. And we do that through the works of justice. And then... The language we speak to the world isn't just more consumeristic rhetoric, more advertising, because, man, we see enough of that. Instead, it is the language of love as we seek to do mercy all around us to all people. Remember those people we saw at the first step? They're the target for this mercy. They're the target for the language of love that permeates through the gospel. And then finally, as we said today, we take a tone with them as we communicate that gospel, a tone of humility as we walk humbly with our God, even as our God has walked humbly with us into Jerusalem. If we do that, I can't guarantee that we'll have every single person you've ever wanted to see here. And I can't guarantee that everyone in the pews will look like you or sound like you or feel like you or think like you or have every value you have, but I can guarantee you this. If you are willing to see all of the people with your justice, if you're willing and able to love them with acts of mercy as your language of the gospel, and if we're willing, as we said today, to walk humbly with our God, the Spirit of the living God will be with us due to the work of the church. 
as it has in ages past and will come to ages following, people will respond to the church that seeks justice, loves mercy, and even on Palm Sunday, walks humbly with our God. Go and be that church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.